0: Thank you, Carolyn. Good morning, friends. Good to see your faces again this morning. Uh hopefully you have your Bible turned or opened or or turned on or whatever works for you to Genesis chapter four. That's where we're gonna be today. And uh, we're we're just moving right along, aren't we? You know, this is like week eighteen, I think, <laughs> in Genesis. Only, you know, twenty more years to go. Um we'll get there. But we're we're moving right along this morning, moving today into chapter four of the book and, and looking uh here at a story that is told in Genesis four verses one to sixteen, what Carolyn just read for us, what we just heard, that that most of you are likely familiar with to some degree. Um it's a it's a story with names that many non Christian, even non-religious people would recognize, Cain and Abel. It's a story about two brothers, the the first two children born to Adam and Eve. Um, it's also a story about the first murder in history, the murder committed by the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, named Cain, against his younger brother Abel. Perhaps a familiar story, um, but a truly tragic one, uh, nevertheless. And and one that is filled to the brim with significance and instructive value for us. I've, I've actually kind of been surprised this week and, and I'd say maybe a little overwhelmed by the, the weight and the importance of this passage. Which is one of the things I so enjoy about digging into scripture like we do every week. You often find a lot more than you expect to find. And uh, that's certainly been the case for me this, this past week as I've been digging into the text of Genesis 4, 1 to 16, which shows us in a very vivid way the spread of sin, the spread of sin throughout the world following the sin of, of Adam and Eve. That's what this passage is ultimately about. It's about sin's spread into and through the rest of the world it's it's a vivid picture of the reality and the severity and and the transmissibility you could say of sin throughout the world so before we get into it i just want to uh, ask you to let's go to the lord together and humble ourselves before him and ask that he might open our eyes to the to the vital and sobering riches of this passage and use it to draw us closer to him let's pray our father for your glory and for our joy in you we ask that in your mercy and by your spirit you would open our eyes once again as you've done before to the to the wonderful and serious and eternally important things that are in your word and that you would use your word, use this passage to, to draw our hearts to Jesus, our Savior. And uh, use it to increase our hatred of sin and, uh, and to increase our love for him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to draw out as much as we can from the passage this morning, I just want to focus in with you on, on three big Truths that are presented in it, okay? Here's truth number one. Truth number one is that sin, this is a truth communicated to us in this passage, sin is a contagion that has infected and corrupted the human race. That's one of the things, one of the most important things we see in this passage. And I would say that's likely... The, the basic and sort of overarching point of this passage, really all of chapter 4 and much of chapter 5 through chapter 11 and even beyond in Genesis for that matter, what do we see here but the spread of sin? This, the, this story is the story of how sin spreads well beyond the borders of God's garden paradise of Eden. This is how the sin, the story here is about how the sin of Adam and Eve will go on to infect the rest of the world, starting with their very own family, starting with their children. We've gotten pretty familiar with the concept of contagion, haven't we, over the the last couple of years like that that of a virus that spreads quickly from person to person and eventually infects people from all over the world or even uh, something less biological like the, the contagion of ideas, social contagion. I hear that phrase being used a lot more these days. Ideas and behaviors that just quickly spread throughout society. Changes of, of thought and behavior that seem to spread as people start to imitate or conform to, to ideas that were once only found in the margins of society. We see that go on these days. This is what's going on here with the sin of Adam and Eve. We see it spreading. We see it passed down. From one generation to another, and we see it get worse here and get worse fast and find new and even more destructive expression than it found in the garden, becoming more destructive in each successive generation. Notice the progression of sin from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. We're just kind of thinking big picture here, but in Genesis 3, it requires the, the direct and really crafty temptation of the serpent, uh, of the devil himself, to lead man into sin. That's Genesis 3. But here in Genesis 4, you don't get any temptation. There's no temptation that's needed because sin is now in the heart of man and he needs no one to trick him into doing it. Notice Cain does this all on his own. He has no one to blame, nowhere to turn uh, the blame too also in Genesis 3 Satan engages man to entice him to sin before he sins here in Genesis 4 though though we see the Lord actually engage Cain before he falls headlong into sin and actually encourages him not to sin so in Genesis 3 they're encouraged to sin by the devil and in Genesis 4 man is encouraged not to sin by God and yet he does so. Furthermore in Genesis 3 we see man sin against God almost exclusively and in a rather subtle sort of way. Adam and Eve, how do they disobey God? They do it by disobeying a command of God by eating fruit from a tree. Seems very innocent, seems sort of you know, not maybe that rebellious, even though we saw it, it is an act of rebellion. They just eat from a tree. And in Genesis 4, we see man sin against God by taking the life of a fellow human. I'd say that's some progression in the destructiveness of sin. We go from eating fruit in Genesis 3 to murdering a fellow image bearer of God in Genesis 4. Also, whereas in Genesis 3, we actually see some expression of repentance on the part of sinners. We talked about that last week, where Adam seems to trust and seems to take hope in the promise of God to send a Savior into the world to defeat the serpent. Here we get no such positive response to God and his word. Adam and Eve seem humbled to some degree under the severity of God in Genesis 4 and even in the first two verses, of, or in Genesis 3 and even the first two verses of Genesis 4 as we'll look at in a little bit. They seem humbled under the severity of God but Cain, we're gonna talk about this and see this, he responds to the severity of God with protest and complaint. He actually thinks his, he's, he's being treated too harshly. Here, then, we also see the progression of sin, the spread of sin, in that at the end of Genesis three, at the end of Genesis three, man has simply been put out of the garden, and not too far out apparently, not too far away, just out. But by the end of Genesis four, man is as as. The writer says, as God says, is away from the presence of the Lord, and he settles in a foreign land uh, named Nod, which actually means wanderer. So it may not even be a specific place. It may just be wherever Cain goes. But he's going away from God, further from God. He's being driven even further in this chapter from the presence of the Lord in the garden than Adam Ended up being. You can see a lot in this. And then finally, the, the destructive spread of sin can also be seen in the effect of it here upon the family. In Genesis 3, the sin of man harms man's relationship to God. But you notice the man and his wife stay together. They stay together their, their family unit remains united, but in Genesis 4, that's no longer the case. It's no longer the case. Their family is broken in Genesis 4. And by the way, not 10 kids down the road or 15 kids down the road, 20 kids down the line, but with their first two kids, their family is broken and that takes us back to Genesis 3 where the Lord promises Eve that having and raising children was going to be painful. How true that is. And it only takes her having two kids to realize just how painful it would be. So sin spreads here into the institution of family the family in Genesis 4, not just out into the world, but into the family. Sin infects the family unit here as well and brings great, great brokenness into it. And I realize that this is sort of, you know, overview perspective. This is sort of big picture perspective, but it's important to see. And it teaches something essential in understanding sin and its effects upon the world. And the message is there is nothing that sin doesn't and won't touch. There is nothing in all the world that sin will not infect. Every person, every relationship, every institution, every corner of the globe. Sin has touched Everything, all aspects of life, the, the contagion of sin has spread far and wide, and there is nothing on earth, no aspect of life on earth that it will not affect. And one of the primary ways that is true is in the sense that, as we see here, sin has spread and will spread to every human being who has or whoever will be born into the world. Their first kid corrupt. That tells us something. Because of Adam's sin, every subsequent human being who has been born into the world or who will be born into the world is going to be born into the world with a fallen, sinful, corrupted nature like Adam's after he sinned with the Lord, against the Lord. There's another effect of Adam's sin that's taught, you know, widely and clearly and repeatedly throughout scripture that Adam's sin corrupts Adam's nature, and then the corrupted nature of Adam is passed down to all of his descendants. This is part of the doctrine of original sin. This is what it's about, starting here in Genesis 4 with Cain. And what that means is that, a, uh, as one theologian puts it, a positive disposition toward sin has been inherited by every human being from Adam onward, with one exception in history, that being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We see that in Cain, I think, don't we? No one's teaching him to sin. No one's tempting him to sin. Adam hasn't taken him along, you know, under his wing and said, now son, here's how we rebel against the Lord. Let me teach you how to disobey God. No one is putting ideas in his head. No one's making him do it. No one's twisting his arm. If anything, he's been warned about sin. He's been encouraged not to sin. He's been promised blessing if he will obey the Lord. So where does Cain go wrong? Ultimately, he goes wrong from birth, as we all do. His father's sinful nature has been passed down to him. Where did you go wrong? Who taught you to sin? Who taught you as a little you know, three year old kid to lie to your parents about whether you took, you know, the cookie from the cookie jar. Who taught you how to do that? Who taught you to blame your brother and sister? They they're the one who started it. Who taught you to to hide from your parents when you've done something wrong? Who teaches us to sin? No one teaches us to sin. It's just built within us. We come pre programmed to sin. We come with a sinful nature downloaded into our whole being. Who teaches people to gossip? Who gave you the instruction manual on unforgiveness? Now, here's how you hold on to a grudge. Step one. Now we just do it. Why? Because it's it's in us. It's a part of us. No one teaches us. Sin comes natural. Sin comes natural to all of us because we're all born corrupt. We're all born sinful, we're all born with that positive disposition, that bent away from God and toward that which dishonors God, all of us, every one of us. And that's a very biblical idea, it's a repeated biblical theme that Adam's sin has polluted the, the moral, spiritual, and even physical nature of every person after him because his corruption is passed down to his descendants such that now every human being is born corrupt, is born inclined to sin, is born bent toward evil and naturally opposed to God. We start out of the gate opposed to him and inclined to do what is evil and not what is good. This is a corruption that has been passed down to us from Adam. Because of Adam's sin, all of us are born sinful. We see it in scripture, a number of places. Genesis 8, 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 1 Kings eight forty there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not saying that the act of conception was sinful, but that once he was conceived, he was in sin. Proverbs 22:15 folly or foolishness and in 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 scripture you know folly is about godlessness it's rebellion against god the writer of proverbs says folly is bound up in the heart of a child it's it's all a part of him Romans 3:10 through 12 none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside or Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This passage is teaching us in, in, in a vivid and, and unforgettable fashion that sin is a deadly contagion and that it has touched and tainted and corrupted and infected all of us. All of us, the whole human race. That's truth number one. And truth number two, this, this brings it sort of out of the realm of theory and theology and down to the world where we all live. Truth number two is that sin corrupts every part of our lives apart from God's grace. Sin corrupts every part of our lives apart from God's grace. While it's true that this passage shows the spread of sin throughout the world, and there's a lot where we could, you know, show that and point that out, a lot of, a lot of evidence of that here. It does show that, the spread of sin throughout the world, but and, and that is the basic idea here, but it also shows the spread of sin into and throughout Cain. Not just into the world, but in Cain. It shows sin take root in Cain's life and heart. It shows how Cain was corrupted by sin and how deeply sinful he became and how his sin was expressed. But the point of, of showing that is not merely to teach us about Cain. This is not a lesson on Cain. Genesis 4 is not even though it is about Cain, it's not about Cain. It's about People. It's about us. This is to teach us about ourselves. This is to teach us about our own sinfulness. This is to show us what our sin looks like and how our sin finds expression in our own lives. This isn't just to teach us some history lesson about a certain guy, the third person who ever lived in history. This is as much about us as as, as it is about him. It's very interesting how... Cain is referred to on a few occasions, couple of occasions at least in the New Testament scriptures. Uh, for instance, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 where the apostle John says very simply, we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Or Jude uh, verse 11 uh, where, where Jude says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. That's, it's apparently a bad thing to walk in the way of Cain. And um, they did that, these false teachers that he was dealing with, that he was addressing, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Cain is looked at by the New Testament writers as an example of what not to be an example of what not to be is providing a pattern of life not to follow you could say they they offer cain the new testament uh offers cain as a as as a prototype i think you could say of how not to live cain you would say you could say is the first non-believer he's the first unrepentant sinner he's he's the, he's a pattern he's an example that countless others throughout history would go on to follow to their own peril he's a pattern he's a prototype and i think we can see this even in genesis 3 and 4 cuz if you remember back to genesis 3 and verse 15 god promised that till the end of time there would be two types of people in the world do you remember that promise the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of eve and i think the idea there is that uh, humanity is going to be divided between those who live in sin and rebellion against God, that's the offspring of the serpent, and those who submit to the authority of God, who are the offspring of Eve. So non-believers, you could say, and, and believers in God, in the true God. Now here in Genesis 4, we see that division of humanity. We see these two groups represented by these two brothers, which means that Cain and Abel are examples, their patterns, their prototypes of we've said, as we've said, of these two groups. But the focus here, you notice, is not on Abel. Abel doesn't get much play here. He doesn't get a lot of airtime here in Genesis 4. Cain does. The focus here is on Cain. Abel's merely referred to as the brother of Cain. He's the brother of Cain. Verse 2, brother of Cain. Verse 8, brother of Cain. Verse 9, your brother. Verse 10, your brother. Verse 11, your brother. It's Cain that's at the center of the passage. Abel is just referred to in reference to his relationship to Cain. Which means that Cain is being presented here as the first clear example of a person who lives in rebellion against God. He's the first example in scripture of a person who ends up judged by God. He's the prototype of a person who is not right with God. He's a person we ought to be careful not to be like. And what he shows us is that the sinfulness of man in our natural state, apart from God's saving grace in Christ, our sinfulness runs very deep. And it corrupts all aspects of our lives. For example... Cain first shows us that our inherent sinfulness corrupts our worship of God. Look at all the stuff that Cain's sinful nature corrupts in his life. First, it corrupts his worship of God. Our sinfulness corrupts our worship of God. You notice here that the, the context where sin's spread is highlighted is the context of worship, right? Cain and Abel, both come to worship the Lord. They both come to God to worship him. That's that's what the offerings are about. They're they're worshiping their creator. And there there's all kinds of speculation. There's all kinds of debate regarding what exactly sets Abel's offering apart from Cain's here, why the Lord as as verse four says, had regard for or looked on looked upon favorably Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his offering, as it says in verse five some speculate that it's because Abel brought a blood offering, a blood sacrifice and Cain didn't, showing that Abel understood that to come into the presence of God, blood has to be shed for your sins whereas Abel or or whereas Cain thought that he could just come to God on his own. Did I say that right? Cain was Abel's the one who thinks he can he has to have a blood sacrifice to approach the Lord. Cain is the one who thinks he can just Approach God in his own his own clothes, his own righteousness, and there may be something to that, but scripture doesn't really say what it does say is that Abel was given or giving the Lord his best in his offering. We see that in verse four: he brought the Lord you know the the first fruits of his offering, firstborn of his flock the 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 uh, the fat portions of of that firstborn of the flock could just be the fattiest of the flock, could just be the best of the flock. Abel was doing that in his offering, and Cain wasn't. Just says he brought, you know, some stuff from the ground. He brought some food to the Lord. We also know that Abel offered his offering by faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven four, and that Cain didn't. Abel was offering his offering. Uh, in, in a heart of, that trusted the Lord and looked to him for grace and mercy and Cain didn't we know from 1 John 3 that Abel's deeds were righteous that means they were consistent with God's character and commands they were obedient to God and that Cain's weren't so I think the most we can say with certainty is that Abel's heart was right toward God and Cain's wasn't pretty simple really the faith, Martin Luther says, the, the, the faith of the individual was the weight which added value to Abel's offering. That's the main thing. Abel trusted the Lord. Abel had faith in the Lord. Cain didn't. Abel was coming to worship the Lord wholeheartedly and Cain wasn't. And notice here the division is not between someone who participates in the activities of worship and someone who doesn't. A person who worships and a person who doesn't worship. Why is that? Because everyone worships. Everyone worships something. We all worship something. Even non-believers, non-Christians worship something. We were made to worship. That's what we were made to do. We were made to, to put something first. God uh, is, is what we were supposed to put first, but that sin has infected all of us. Even non-believers worship, we were made that way. Everyone puts something or someone first. Everyone's driven by an all-consuming passion and a, sh- a shaping and foundational conviction of life. Everyone has a top priority. Everyone has you know something that if push comes to shove, they're going to choose above all other things. You can be a worshiper and not be right with God insofar as the thing you worship isn't the true God himself or insofar as you worship something above the one true God. But this is where sin starts. This is where it starts. Sin is fundamentally a disordering of our loves, a disordering of our affections. It's a corruption of our worship. Sin is fundamentally not worshiping the one true God like he deserves. A non-believer, an unrepentant sinner is not someone who doesn't worship. It's someone who worships something other than the true God and worships or worships uh, the true God with, with the hands and feet and lips, but not with the heart. Comes to church, but is just bored to death with all the singing and praying and talking and sitting. Reads the Bible, but just doesn't ever see the goodness in it. What is the point of this? They just do it because that's what you have to do. They pray, but not because of any conviction, not because of any pleasure, not because of faith in God, not because of any idea that God is good and powerful and and is listening but just because they are supposed to pray. They give money and serve in ministry and show up, you know, to to events and activities, but only to avoid the guilt that you'd experience if you didn't do those things. It seems that Cain participated in worship maybe out of obligation. And not willingly out of the desires of his heart and his love for God and his longing for a deeper walk with God. It was all under compulsion. None of it was by faith. None of it was motivated by love for God. His worship was empty and sincere, insincere and misdirected. Sin had corrupted his worship. It had belittled God and minimized God in his heart. Cain also shows us that our sinfulness corrupts our view of sin. Not just our view of God, but our view of sin. It makes the, the concept of sin offensive to us. Notice what Cain originally becomes angry about here in this passage. We see it in verse 5. He becomes angry that God accepted, uh, accepts Cable, Abel's offering and not his own. God ac- accepted Abel. God accepted Abel's offering and God did not accept Cain and did not accept his offering. And that's why he's mad. That's why he's angry. It's, a, it, it's as if he's shocked that the Lord wasn't pleased and honored with his half-hearted, compulsory worship. How could you not receive this? I mean, I'm here, aren't I? You know, he's, he's, he's shocked that the Lord is offended, that the Lord is not pleased with what he's given, and he gets mad about it. He's ultimately getting mad that, that God is indicating, God is implying, perhaps, that he's a sinner. That's how sin reacts when it's exposed. You know where a person's at, spiritually speaking, oftentimes by their reaction to the news that their sin is bad. By their reaction to the news that, that they have sinned. In something. Believers in Christ, those who worship the true God, respond to the news, at least in general, that they are sinners and that they sin with agreement and contrition and repentance. Non believers respond to that news with offense and disdain and anger and despair. It's not that, that some are sinful and others aren't. That's not the point of this, this passage, that Abel was without sin and Cain was a sinner. That's not, the, that's not the point here. It's not that some are sinful and others aren't. It's that some reject the news that they are sinful and others, by God's grace alone, receive that news and agree with it. One evidence that sin has, has, has sort of overtaken you is that you react to the news that you are a sinner, generally speaking, or that you have sinned, maybe in a specific situation, assuming that you actually have sinned. You respond to that news with anger and offense and not with humility and confession. Helps you understand why the world, by and large, finds the idea that they are sinners, finds the message that, that we are sinners who need forgiveness so offensive. So it's, sin, it's how sin looks at sin. Sin becomes offended at sin. At the news that you are a sinner. Cain also shows us how our sinfulness corrupts our response to the Lord's calls to repentance. And his promises of grace. This is actually, you know, I think one of the more surprising and sad parts of the passage. Verses 6 and 7 specifically where the Lord takes note of Cain's anger, that his sacrifice has been rejected by God. And so God asks him, obviously not for his own benefit, but for Cain's, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And in the Old Testament, a fallen face is like a scowl. He's visibly angry here. And, and then he says in verse 7 to Cain, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its, its desire is for you or its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. And in a way, this is like the central issue of the passage. This is the central issue facing Cain. This is the central issue facing every non-Christian, every unrepentant sinner on the earth. This is really the question for every Christian who's caught in sin or exposed in sin. The question, you know, or the issue is, if you, if you just repent of your attitude, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, just worry about doing what's right, not what's easy, but what's right, just worry about what is acceptable to God, just worry about getting right with God, won't it go well for you? Won't it go well for you? Not circumstantially, but spiritually, eternally, won't it go well for you if that's your concern? Like, you're, you're at a decisive point here. Won't you turn and live? Why would you not turn? What good reason do you have not to repent right now? You never lose anything by repenting. You never lose anything. It's not a sacrifice to repent. It's not like you have to give up something good. Repentance is about giving up something bad for God. So God says, won't it go well for you if you just do what's right here? Don't be angry. Repent of your attitude. Just acknowledge that you're a sinner and you need grace and come to me and look to me for mercy. Won't it go well for you if you do that? And you notice how Cain responds to the Lord's pleading here. This is what's so sad about this passage. He, he says nothing. Doesn't even apparently have a conversation. He just goes off to find his brother so that he can kill him. Sin hardens us to God's word. It hardens us to the Lord's pleading and the Lord's promises. Another thing Cain shows us is how our inherited, in, inherited sinfulness corrupts our view of others. Corrupts our view of God, of sin, of repentance, God's word, of others. It really does. And this is ultimately what we see in the act of murder. Cain goes off in verse 8 and, and just kills his brother. He's like, hey, you want to go out to the, out to the field? Then he kills him. Takes his life. Rather than dealing with himself, rather than examining himself, rather than humbling himself, he opts for the the path of destroying his brother to get rid of that annoying reminder that he is a sinner in need of repentance. And in a general sense, this is an example of how those who are lost in sin, those who are caught up in sin, treat people, they step on them, they they disregard them, they use them, they oppose them, they hurt them to get ahead. And maybe not, you know, their friends, maybe not their kids, maybe not their closest companions but certainly their enemies you get in my way you oppose me you disagree with me you correct me you expose me sin against me tell me i'm a sinner that's it that's why john the apostle john looks at cain and tells the first century church in 1 john 3 don't be like that don't be like Cain. And the idea isn't just simply don't kill your brother, right? I mean, that's a low bar for most of us, a low bar. Don't just kill people. Just don't do that. It's good advice, by the way. The idea is don't disregard the lives of other people like Cain disregarded the life of his brother. Treat people as valuable, not as, not as expendable, don't step on people to get ahead. Don't hate people in your heart. Don't treat yourself as more important and more valuable than your neighbor. Love others as God has loved you, even those who are hard to love. God's people do that, or at least seek to do that. And those who aren't, don't. So our sinfulness corrupts our view of others. Cain also shows us that our sinfulness corrupts our understanding of the consequences of our sin. Specifically, it leads us to complain about the consequences of our sins instead of learning from those consequences. you know as you see that here after after the Lord graciously engages with Cain after murdering his brother about what he had done, and it is so gracious, so kind, so patient of the Lord to engage this guy he's just killed his brother. And the Lord engages him. The Lord seeks to help him see the badness of his sin and his need for repentance. And then after he does that, after God engages with him and and after he explains the consequences of his sin, you know, like in verses 11 and 12, how he will not ever find success as a farmer again. Or verse 12, how he's going to live now as a vagabond, you know, wanderer for the rest of his life. After all that, and you got to think these are relatively minor consequences. <laughs> relatively minor for what he had done. And yet after engaging him and explaining the consequences which in, you know, f- from eternity's perspective are fairly minor, Cain complains. He complains. Verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me okay so it's bad when someone does that to you but not when you've done it to someone else they're gonna kill me isn't that what you just did this isn't fair Cain objects to the consequences of his sin and says, this is too harsh. He's really saying, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve that? That's severe. Whereas the believing response to the consequences of sin is, I deserve far worse than this. And I know that the Lord can use this pain... That I've brought on myself by my sin for, the, for good in my life. So I need to embrace it. I need to seek to learn from it. I need to let it teach me to pursue holiness and submit to God. That's what the heart of belief says to the consequences of sin. Only unbelief reacts to the earthly consequences of sin. Consequences that, that stop short of eternal hell, by the way, as being too harsh. And then finally, Cain shows us how our inherited sinfulness corrupts our view of the value of repentance. The value of repentance. You notice, you see, what Cain prefers here is to live away from God over submitting to God. That's what he actually prefers. You notice how the account ends, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Uh, in Genesis three verses twenty-three and twenty-four, it's God who drives out Adam and Eve from His presence. It's God who sends them away. It's God who drives them away. Here, it's Cain who goes away. Of his own will, of his own accord, he goes away. Cain does. And yeah, God says that Cain will be a fugitive and a on the earth, a wanderer on the earth. He predicts that. He promises that. But Cain doesn't protest that part. He seems just to accept that part. He'd rather wander from God than worship God, go away from God than submit to God. That's the ultimate expression of our sinfulness. When you'd rather be away from him than to just submit to him. So Cain shows us how, just how deeply corrupt people are in Adam apart from Christ just how sinful we are apart from the life-renewing and sin-forgiving grace of God. It's not that we slip up here and there or make a mistake on occasion. It's that we refuse to worship God like he like He deserves according to the his own revelation of himself. We refuse to acknowledge that we are sinful and that we can't make ourselves acceptable to him through our own works and deeds. And we reject his appeals to turn from sin and to turn to him for mercy, and we think highly of ourselves and very little of others, and think of ourselves as deserving of God's blessing and favor, and others as less deserving than us. We see our sins as little and light and surely not deserving of any severe consequences from God, and we see living away from God as better than living under His sovereign authority. It's truly, as John Calvin said, we are so entirely controlled by the power of sin, apart from God's grace and the Spirit's work in Christ, that is, that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. Cain is a picture of just how lost people are apart from the saving grace of God in Christ. How lost you and I were and would be had god not in mercy opened our eyes to our sin and our need for christ this might be how lost some here today are some some here should consider seriously whether this describes them the sin of adam has spread to all of us and it has corrupted every aspect of our of our of ourselves our our being our nature in every aspect of our lives, which is the reason, by the way, that we all need a Savior. This is the reason. We all need Christ. This is the reason. Because Cain is us apart from Jesus. And this passage actually points us to Christ, and it teaches us also about the kind of Savior that we're gonna need in light of sins spread throughout mankind and throughout our individual lives, and that brings us to our third truth here that we should reflect on before we close, and it's this: that sin's only solution is a perfectly sinless Savior. the The, the optimism that opens this chapter is is striking. The, this chapter ends on a very or begins on a very high note. The first verse is so happy and so full of hope. Let's look at it again. It says, "Now Adam knew his." Wife knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Yes. And I think the idea is she's rejoicing at Cain's birth as if it is the fulfillment of the promise that God had just extended to them not long before this. This day uh, in Genesis 3.15, that promise that one of her descendants would come to defeat the serpent who attempted them to sin and presumably make the world that he had corrupted right once again. She thought Cain was going to be the fulfillment of the great promise that God had given them in Genesis 3 of a serpent-crushing savior. She's reflecting on that promise here, I think. She's thinking that Cain's birth might be the fulfillment of that promise. I think that's most likely, that Eve initially thought, at least initially, that Cain would be the one to come to defeat the serpent and rescue the world from his corrupting influence and from sin and from death. Eve thought, or at least wondered, or at least had some optimism that Cain might be the savior that had been promised. And quickly we find out that hope was sorely misplaced. But what that teaches us, and what it would have taught Adam and Eve, is that the only one who could possibly save the world from sin and judgment is the one who is not guilty of sin himself. Someone who's not like Cain at all. Someone who wouldn't be corrupted by the sin of Adam. Someone who wouldn't be corrupted by that same sinful nature. In terms of application, this passage teaches us not only to, or, or to look only in one direction for salvation from the corrupting power of sin and the judgment that it deserves, and it's not in the direction of mere men. It's not in the direction of Sinners whether that be kings and princes and generals and presidents and rulers and government leaders or parents and siblings and spouses and pastors and teachers and friends. They're all fellow sinners in need of the same salvation as you and me. Rather, we must look in the direction of the only one who, as the writer of Hebrews says, was tempted in every way as we are and remained yet without sin. He's the one we have to look to. The only man who ever lived who didn't need to be saved from his own sins. He's the one we need to look to. The one whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24, the one whose blood does not call out for justice to be served, but whose blood proclaims that justice has been satisfied. So you could say this passage intentionally bursts the bubble of the hopes we place in mere men to do for us what only Christ can do. And we would do well by responding to this passage with faith in him and distrust in ourselves and joy in his salvation from the widespread corruption of sin and the judgment that it deserves. Let's pray. Father, even in these uh, harder, heavier sections of Scripture we, we know we hear your voice. This is you speaking, this is you revealing yourself, your ways to us. This is you even revealing revealing our own hearts to us, just peeling back the curtain of our own sin and hard heartedness and calloused. Nature and, and helping us see ourselves for who we truly are before your blazing holiness. We are sinners. We are, in many ways, and truly apart from your grace, we are like Cain. And it's only by your grace and it's only by your, your Spirit's work through your Son that we cannot be like him, that we can be saved from, from judgment and from the power of sin. So Lord, we pray that you'd use your word, the word we've heard today, to teach us truly to not look within ourselves for salvation, not look to other people for salvation, but only to look for to Christ for salvation. Teach us to trust him more, love him more, and worship him more sincerely, for we do pray in his name. Amen.